Hello, and welcome to Lighting the Shadows, a podcast all about mental health. I'm your host, Kristen Lowerson, and I'm grateful to be able to share this conversation here that I had with my cousin's sweet wife, Hannah Bennett. In this episode, Hannah speaks openly about her personal experience with debilitating ADHD. Hannah and I both talk about our experiences around battling suicidal thoughts and our thoughts on suicide after struggling with suicidal ideation. This episode is very heavy and it contains many personal thoughts and opinions that should not be taken as professional advice. However, Hannah hopes that by sharing her story with honesty and openness, she can help destigmatize mental illness and encourage others to seek resources and help as early as possible. I'm so grateful for Hannah and her courage and willingness to share such a vulnerable part of her life story with listeners. She is a true warrior, and I'm grateful to know her and share her words with you. Thank you for listening. If you have found this podcast helpful, the best way to show your support is by leaving a good review on Apple Podcasts. This will help the show reach more people. Thank you all so much. So today we have on the show someone who is near and dear to my heart because um, this is actually my cousin's wife, and I'm so grateful that she's willing to be on the podcast today. Her name's Hannah. So welcome, Hannah. So excited to have you on today. Thanks for having me. We're family. Yes. Yes, and I I'm also connected with Hannah too because um we're both dental hygienists. So that's pretty exciting too. We're flossy ladies. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> scum scrapers. <laughs> no, I love it. <laughs> well, Hannah, so if you don't mind, go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so we already know you're a dental hygienist, but just kind of tell us, you know, a glimpse into who you are, a glimpse into your life story. So my name's Hannah and I'm the middle child out of seven kids. I have a twin sister, so my parents got a two for one deal. (laughs) Um, I live with my amazing husband and our beautiful little fluffy dog in California Um, There's a really exciting date that's coming up for me. This March 27th, it marks the 10-year anniversary of my very last suicide attempt. And in my life, it was my darkest moment, and it was the turning point for me to get treatment for my mental health issues. And so, you know, that's an important thing in my life. Um, yeah, that's a huge accomplishment to not go back to that place, you know, to find healing enough to where that's not, um, something that you are struggling with. Um, so tell us a little bit more in detail about your mental health and like, what were the first symptoms that you experienced? Like, what was like your initial memory of, when you started to struggle with mental challenges, um, do you remember feeling like, you know, what, what were your feelings or what were your thoughts and around what age do you think you were? So I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was in second grade, but it was when I was in kindergarten that my kindergarten teachers talked to my parents and they said, Something's not right with Hannah. Not in a mean or degrading way. They just knew that something was off. And I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 13. But I have memories of struggling with all of those things throughout my life. So, you know, starting in second grade, I would see a psychiatrist and I was put on medication and... Growing up, you know, that was something that was, you know, we go to the psychiatrist and check how things are working and change it if we needed to. Um, But I also grew up in a really dysfunctional, abusive home. And Mm -hmm. I guess I would say that 
when you struggle with your mental health, it's just part of part of your life. And I think a lot of times it's only when you're able to get help and really become well that you notice that these things that you went through and struggled with weren't your best, healthiest version of yourself. So it's hard for me to pinpoint exact when I started noticing something because it's been a part of me since I was born. Mm -hmm. Even told me that, so I have problems with overstimulation from sounds and sights and things, and it's related to my ADHD. Mm -hmm. And my mom said when I was an infant, I would cry the entire time I was in the grocery store and I wouldn't stop. And then I would stop as soon as we left. And I know looking back on that now, it was because of, I know how it feels when I'm overstimulated like that. Mm -hmm. So it's just always been a part of me. Yeah. Um, So when you, when you were going through that, like as a young child, did you feel like, were you like alone in it or did you have like people in your life that you felt like got it too? Or did you just feel like you were the odd one out in a sense? It's been really isolating and really frustrating, particularly dealing with my ADHD in my life. It sounds weird to think that that's been the biggest thorn for me because, you know, now I've been able to, and we'll of course go into what has happened to be able to let me be in a state that's well, but my bipolar disorder doesn't affect me every day because of getting treatment. It doesn't affect me anymore. But I've always felt really frustrated because when you're aware that your mind is not functioning and there's a block that's interfering with your ability to process what people are saying and do tasks, for me, it's been frustrating. Yeah. Other people that I've talked with share their different experiences and particularly with ADHD, I've met people who have been able to have functional lives and they sort of just kind of embrace it as, oh, this is a quirk of mine. But for me, it's really severe. And I don't know if I've really talked to many people who have the same, I guess you could say stunting in speech and processing and doing tasks. And so it's been really isolating specifically in regards to that gotcha. part of illness. That sounds so frustrating. What was the hard what's the hardest thing about the ADHD? Because it sounds like it's still very much a struggle that you have. Um, you said it's affecting your everyday. And that's really frustrating. Like what is the most frustrating thing about it? And how how have you noticed that? like your brain functions differently than like quote unquote, like the normal brain, which I feel like normal is just a setting on the washing machine, but yeah, <laughs> but, you know, from like average, I guess. With medication, my ADHD is so much better than it is by itself, but by itself, meaning, you know, without treatment, I am aware that I have trouble processing information. It was actually, it was interesting. I was taking my written national board exam to become a dental hygienist. And one of the questions, you know, it said, what are symptoms of somebody who has ADHD? And one of them was listed on there that I'd never heard in class and I'd never put words to it. But I was like, oh, that's how you describe it. And one of the things that is a struggle for me is deficient short-term memory. So for example, if I'm sitting and talking to someone and I'm looking them in the eyes and I'm using all my efforts to try and comprehend what they're saying, it doesn't compute and things will go in one ear out the other. Um, As a child, I got lost a couple times at the zoo and the aquarium, I think twice, because I would zone in on paying attention to the penguins or the 
lions or whatever it was and everyone else would move on and I wouldn't hear them calling my name looking for me. Mm -hmm. Or something like if you're in a building and there's a really noisy fan in the background, not being able to let that go. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm aware of that. I'm aware of my inability to process things that people say and, my, and hold on to them or coming up with thoughts. It'll be lost in processing or mm-hmm. get overwhelmed by too much stimulation overwhelms my brain and I feel foggy and it's just hard for me. Yeah. It's just yeah. really difficult. And I, again, you know, we only see a limited piece of our exposure to people's lives. But I know my mom has ADHD just like me. But everyone, when they talk about it, they tend to, you know, you hear the joke on the internet, oh, look, a squirrel. Ha ha. I get distracted. But for me, it's very frustrating knowing that I can try as hard as I can. And I know that I'm an intelligent person. Mm-hmm. Being unable to process the things around me and sort out sounds and stimuli and words, it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very interesting as you describe that because when I was going through depression and anxiety and not sleeping well, that is very much my my experience was just what you described. Like I remember sitting and trying to have a conversation with my father-in-law and trying so hard to focus. Like like you said, connection with the eyes, like trying to listen to what he was saying and just getting completely lost. And I would I remember those feelings of frustration that I had like I am trying so hard to have like a conversation to connect with you and my brain is not letting me. And, um, and several times too, with my husband, I would ask him questions and he would respond and I would realize I am not understanding what he's saying. And that was really, really frustrating. So, um, and it, I, I can't imagine how frustrating that would be to have to struggle with that on a daily basis. Because for me, thank goodness it was temporary. You know, I struggled with it for, I struggle with that actually um, when I'm struggling with depression, anxiety, and lack of sleep. And it's mm-hmm. it's like within those months of my life um, that I've really struggled. I, I would like start a conversation with someone and then like stop half sentence, like mid sentence. I wouldn't be able to finish my sentence because I wouldn't remember what I was trying mm-hmm. to talk about. And it's, it's, I felt very humiliated. I was like, like, I, I promise, like, I'm trying to be present with you, but my brain is literally not letting me, like, comprehend what is happening. And yeah, and I think for me, that was the most frustrating part is like knowing that it wasn't, it was happening, like being very hyper aware that it was happening, but like not knowing how to fix it or change it. Um, so I can empathize with that a little bit, but, but on a smaller scale, you know? Well, and I don't think you should necessarily say, you know, smaller scale because our men, our mental health is so tied into language processing and speaking and you know, your struggles, it sounds just as you're saying those things. I just feel so understood, like, oh, you know, someone gets it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, my struggles are related to my specific diagnosis in that regards, but you probably understand exactly how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember those times and I, I hated that, especially like, as a dental hygienist, like I, I was working at the time and I was, um, 
I was trying to have conversations with people and totally would lose track of what I was trying to say. And what, like, number one, when you're like working in people's mouths, it's so hard to maintain conversation anyway, because you have your hands in their mouths and you can relate to that. It's like when you're trying to really connect with your patients, that could be challenging because <laughs> you're also mm-hmm. trying to do a very good job cleaning their teeth. But then I would completely like lose my train of thought of where I was trying to go in the conversation, it would be very humiliating coming from a professional standpoint, um, not being able to like carry on those conversations that I so desperately wanted to have. So yeah, it's, oh, for me, it affected, it affected me in every aspect of my life, like professionally and like relationally, try like with good friends, even like, I would get really frustrated with myself because all I wanted was to connect with other people and my brain wasn't allowing me to do that. Um, And that felt very isolating. And it's hard in a dental setting as well because so I guess, gosh, time with 2020 is so weird. So it's been over a year, (laughs) but I've been on the same medication since I was 17 for my ADHD and I saw a new psychiatrist and he added something which made it even better. Um, better treated, I mean. But for me in the professional setting, being able to switch my attention from one task to the other and be aware of external stimuli and people saying my name, like it was so hard and Mm -hmm. a little bit better now, but it's not all gone. It's really, it's really tough. I don't know. People just, I just haven't talked with people who have shared that ADHD has been debilitating in that way. I mean, I used to fidget all the time and not be able to help that, but that's better now. Yeah. It's just just interesting. It's tough. Yeah. Well, I think that you deserve a huge pat on the back, gold star, because dental hygiene school is, (laughs) is freaking hard. Like it is so hard and being able to like accomplish that and get to where you are right now with the challenges that you've had, like, that's amazing. And you deserve like a big gold star. Thank you. <laughs> Way more than a gold star. <laughs> but that is so, so amazing. Um, Thank you. Many tears. Oh, yes. Well, I had, I had many tears and, oh, I feel like most, most dental hygienists going through that, like it is, it's hard. It's dental hygiene school is probably one of the hardest things I've ever done, but then like add the layer of your mental challenges you were facing that like other people in your class weren't facing. That is just like even more incredible that you're able to accomplish what you've accomplished. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The school I went to didn't have a quiet place to study and it was down in Sacramento, so I wouldn't go home and study. So I actually had earplugs and then, you know, those big headphones that people wear when they go shooting? Yeah. Those headphones. Lock out the sound. I mean, I've never looked cool, so (laughs) start. (laughs) You always look cool, (laughs) Hannah. (laughs) No, seriously, that's not an insecure thing. I am a big dork. And that has come about <laughs> for me being confident in myself to just be myself. Yes. Oh, it's totally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I feel like I didn't even know that this interview was going to go in the direction of ADHD, but I'm so fascinated by it. And I also feel like connected to it because I also, during the time, like I had a, a doctor that I was seeing that was like, have you been tested for ADHD? Because the things that you're describing sound like <laughs> ADHD and I never have been, but um, I feel like that's kind of my brain becomes an ADHD brain when I am depressed and ang- like feeling anxiety. Um, but I just want to ask you a couple more questions about it. Like when, when did you notice, did you, did you say it was about that same age, like kindergarten age that, is that when you were diagnosed with ADHD? That was when it was noticed that something was off. Mm-hmm. The psychiatrist that my parents found was a pretty conservative person. So he kept an eye on me. And then it was in second grade where it was like, okay, you know, this isn't something she's going to grow out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually, I don't have a memory of exactly what this felt like, 
But I remember my mom telling me that when I was in kindergarten, I described to her that I had elephants pounding in my head. Aww. And that's what I described to her. You know, as eloquent as a five-year-old can come up with yes. describe what she's feeling. So it's been something I've always struggled with. Mm-hmm. And then it was around second grade that you started giving me medication and recognizing it for what it is. Yeah. That was when it started. And do you feel like even back then in second grade, like, do you feel like the medication really helped? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like you notice a, a big difference. Yeah. Uh, the thing about medication, and this is something I'm super open with anyone who will listen to my little spiel on this, is especially as, as a child, your body changes and grows. And so your medication just changes over time. Mm-hmm. And I've met a lot of people who, you know, whether you're a child, you know, you're dealing with your child or as an adult, they try medication with the, with the guidance of a doctor and they have this adverse side effect and they just stop. And they're like, oh, I just had this and it made me feel awful. And then they kind of give up on the process mm-hmm. that it takes to use medication to treat mental illness. I'm a huge proponent of getting therapy and having a professional manage your medications. Yeah. And it just makes me sad how many people don't know that because this is a complicated chronic illness affecting your brain, it's complicated to find the right dosage of medication. And I've talked to many people who just kind of give up instead of. Yes. Like I had, I had one bad experience. I didn't want to do it anyway. So I'm just going to forget about it and find something different. And yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point to make. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because like for me, um, I started on an antidepressant and it made everything worse. Like my suicidal ideation got worse. Um, my sleep got worse. Like it heightened everything. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to do that. Um, but then my next medication that I tried, I had no side effects and it ended up being a fantastic fit for me. And, um, and I'm very grateful for it. And not that it solved everything, but it definitely took my, my threshold of anxiety down. And, um, so I think, yeah, that's a very important point to make that like, if something doesn't work out for you, don't give up on it altogether. Like there's different, there's many different avenues, like many different antidepressants or, um, different medications that can help your mental challenges and, and don't give up after just like one try that Mm -hmm. failed for you, you know? And with mental health medication too. So I, you know, we've been talking about ADHD. I also have bipolar disorder and I take four prescription medications total and two of them are related to ADHD. And then one is a mood stabilizer and one is for the bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And years of trial and error and certain medications, you can't just start something and then stop or they'll try a dose and they'll be like, let's see how we feel at this dose. And then let's change that again. And it takes several months. Yeah. The treatment of mental illness. I just wish that people recognized it as just your brain is, is sick. Your brain is an organ, just like any of the other organs in our body. Mm-hmm. For example, the pancreas, if, you're, if it's not producing insulin, because it has an autoimmune disorder that's type 1 diabetes, the treatment is getting in, you know, using insulin and getting direction on how to change your lifestyle and your eating habits. Yes, yes. You can keep yourself healthy and safe. Mm-hmm. And I feel like our brain, we tend to define ourselves in the way that we see and speak and feel 
and act. But that behavior is tied to our brain health. Yes. So that's why I feel mental health needs to be treated with medication and therapy, like insulin and nutritional direction or whatever. Mm-hmm. People didn't think that there's something about our character, our core, who we are is attached to whether or not I can get over this on my own. Yeah. And it can be so confusing with mental illness. Um, and I've, I've heard this from so many people. We attach our identity to our thoughts and our feelings and everything that, you know, our brain is such an, a vital organ and it's it's in charge of all those things. And so when there's something going on in our brain that's changing our thoughts and our feelings, we automatically attach that to our identity because we relate our identity to um, our thoughts and our feelings and the way that we perceive ourselves and perceive the world. And that's what our brain is helping us do. So when you're struggling with, you know, whether it be like a hormone imbalance or whether it be like, you know, something that your brain is not producing enough um, of or overproducing and it's it's changing your perceptions and it's changing your emotions. And that can be really confusing because it feels like you are changing, like the core of who you are is changing. And, and depression can be so confusing. Um, and I'm sure ADHD, bipolar, all the mental illnesses because you are, they are changing the way that you perceive the world and yourself and your thoughts and your feelings. It can be very confusing to differentiate that between like, okay, you know, this is my brain. (laughs) This is something going on with my brain, but me, like who I am, um, is, is someone of value. It's, I am someone of value. I'm someone of worth. I'm someone worth love, even though my brain is going through all these confusing things that feel very scary and threatening. Um, And I feel like when your mental illness is not doing so well, it's almost as if who you really are, your best self, is hidden under these layers, under this fog. And so when you're able to get the treatment that you need and find the medication that works for you, all these layers are able to be peeled away and then your true best self is underneath there. Yeah, but you get so lost in that fog. At least I know I did. Like I mm-hmm. I was convinced that I was my mental illness. I think I've talked about this a little bit in the in previous episodes, but just feeling like I was my mental challenges and I kind of forgot who who that girl was. Like I remember feeling, you know, before my mental challenges, I remember feeling very like a lot more secure in my own skin and a lot like a lot happier. And I remember that, but like when I was in these, these dark times, but I was convinced that this, this person I was in those, in the darkness was me permanently. And I hated that person, you know, like I hated feeling that way. I hated thinking that way. And I, so it, mental illness can be so confusing because yeah, it's very tied into like, how we see ourselves because that is what the brain is doing. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. doing the perceiving. It's doing the, you know, it's creating the cortisol or whatever it might be to tell our bodies like this is a threatening situation or whatever. So if there's something that's switched off or changed in the brain, it just confuses everything to the core of like who we are. And I think for me, that was the hardest, hardest thing with mental illness and my mental struggles is separating my identity from them and realizing, hey, like this is just a temporary struggle and I just need to find the tools to get better and to experience healing. And once I find those tools, then I will be able to find, feel and feel that peace that I've once felt but forgot how that felt <laughs> and that joy 
that I've once felt, but forgot how that felt. Um, yeah, it's, I think that's why so many people feel hopeless in mental illness because it is very confusing and it, it tries to convince you that you are going to be that way, you know, forever and that there's no, no hope and no getting better. But I think both you and I, Hannah can attest to the reality that there is, there are tools. Yeah. It's, it can be complicated. It can be a process, but there are tools and, um, there is help and there's healing available for everybody. It just, it just takes seeking them out. And I feel that it's a straightforward solution, but not a simple solution as meaning it's related to our brain and our brain health. So we need medical intervention, but it's really hard chronic illness to have to manage. Yeah. Takes a lifetime of managing your medication and getting therapy. I see my psychiatrist every three months, keep up on my medications. And I see my therapist every other week. And I was talking with her a few, a few sessions ago. And she said to me, I was reflecting on, you know, my journey of how I've gotten to where I am now. And she said, that didn't just happen. It's come through me being able to be so fortunate to get the resources I need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wish that we wouldn't be afraid of, of getting help. Yeah. Specifically with, you know, after my suicide attempt when I was 17 and I was hospitalized for two weeks uh, in the psychiatric facility, Mm -hmm. I hate, I hate, (laughs) hate the way that the movies depict getting in hospital care. Mm -hmm. And I've even had personal conversations with loved ones who have struggled with mental illness, who have been afraid to go get care because they think it's this prison where you're locked up in a straitjacket and you bang your head on the wall and it's scary and you don't have autonomy. And that's just the opposite of the truth. Yeah. In, in generations past, yes, that's how psychiatric hospitals were, but that's not how they are now. And for me, it was actually this, it was exactly what I needed, obviously, after going through that suicide attempt and almost dying. Mm-hmm. It was a welcome reprieve in my experience. Yeah. Just the beginning of the long, long, intensive treatment I had to get afterwards to be well. Yeah. After that attempt, I didn't stop being suicidal. I was in the hospital for two weeks and then I saw my psychiatrist once a week and I had to figure, I had to switch from one psychiatrist to the other because the first one wasn't able to handle the situation in the right way. And I had therapy three times a week at individual and group therapy and family therapy. Mm -hmm. It just gave you like immense access to care because it's all there in one place. And that's, that's the purpose of your visit there is to get help and to get the tools and get the care that you need. And it's all there. Not be afraid of the the terrible depictions that there are of getting in hospital care. Yeah. And I want to say too, just listening to you, Hannah, and also thinking about the, the close friends and family members that I have that have suffered from mental illness. And first of all, addressing the shame, because I know when I was struggling with that, it was an immense, immense shame that I was battling. Like, um, like I can't believe that I'm letting myself feel this way and think these thoughts and, how dare I do this when I'm a mother and how dare, you know, but honestly, I didn't feel like I had much control over it at that time, but I wanted like now with the gift of hindsight and conversations with other people who share like yourself, Hannah, who share your experience so openly and gracefully. And I think how incredible we are. (laughs) And I look at people that have mental challenges and that are struggling through it and trying to get tools and 
or even just like experiencing it for the first time and in that place of darkness. And I just want to say like, I feel like these people are like freaking warriors. (laughs) Like that's, I think about myself during that time of really intense struggle and how much I felt just incredible self-hate. Um, I really despised myself because I really took full responsibility for what I was going through. And now I'm able to look back on myself during that time. And I just want to tell myself in those moments, like you are a warrior. You are fighting so hard. You're doing everything that you can to survive. And this is hard, hard, hard. Like people that don't understand, have not gone through mental illness, they don't understand the hard. But when you go through it, you can say like, yeah, like that is miserable and you are a warrior. Like you're amazing to just keep on doing what you can to survive. And also um, for you, Hannah, it's been a lifelong battle. And, and for me, it wasn't, you know, I've, I've had moments in time where it's been an intense, really horrific battle. And I admire your courage and your perseverance. And even though it's been a challenge for so long that you have endured through it and that you have sought out tools and you continue to make sure that it's a priority and you you know now going through what you've gone through what you need to do to make sure that you have a handle on your mental challenges and to function as well as you can. I do want to point out that I also, I look back on, I think of 10 years ago, right? And how I, everything kind of came to a head all at once, obviously. And I had been suicidal for years and I didn't do anything to get treatment because my brain wasn't healthy. And I completely empathize with myself in that stage. And I think it's understandable, like what you were saying with putting responsibility on ourselves to be, why am I feeling this way? Why shouldn't I know better? Why shouldn't I this or that? When your brain isn't healthy, your brain isn't going to function in the way that a healthy brain does. Mm-hmm. So for me, I didn't have the skills. And I use the word skills because I learned about it later in therapy, specifically dialectical behavior therapy, which teaches you coping skills. I didn't have the skills to even form the words in my head. I need help. Yeah. And so I wasn't accountable for controlling why I was feeling this way. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I totally do because I remember feeling, um, feeling a lot of shame about the feelings and thoughts that I was experiencing, but also feeling very much like they weren't my own and very much like I didn't have any control. Like it got to the point that it was so consuming for me and overtaking for me that I would have all these thoughts that didn't feel like me, um, all these feelings that didn't feel like me. And I was desperately trying to fight them. Like I was putting everything that I felt like I could do to fight them. And but I felt like I was drowning and failing. Like I think mental challenges can get to the point where your brain is literally not functioning and there's not much choice or agency that you have left. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and for me, that was the, one of the hardest, one of the hardest things with it is I felt like my, my agency was taken away. My ability to choose was taken away in a lot of different things. Um, like just like we said earlier, just wanting, choosing to have a conversation with somebody, choosing to connect with them, but my brain wasn't allowing me to do it. And then I remember having moments where I was trying to make my one, my one goal for the day was to make dinner 
for myself and my daughter. And I remember sitting there for an hour or two trying to meal plan, trying to create just something that I could make for my daughter. And I literally could not do it. And pacing back and forth in the kitchen, trying to decide like, well, what can I make for her? What can I make? And not being able to do it. Um, So I think it can get to a point where your brain is not functioning and you, you literally don't have the choice anymore to like do like you're trying to choose good things, but like your brain's not letting you. Um, so no, I, I get that. Like it, and it's extremely frustrating. And it's also, um, for me, it was very difficult not to, not to, not to in the moment feel completely responsible for that. You know, like I felt a lot of, I blamed myself for everything and a lot of like self-hate because I felt like, whoa, I'm a terrible mom. I can't even focus to make dinner for my kid, you know, like, but, um, I feel like now I realize, okay, that was just my brain. That wasn't me. I knew my intentions were there. I can now have compassion for myself, um, in that moment and realize like, Hey, I was doing the very best I could. And thankfully I was able to find the tools that I needed to recover and for my brain to heal and to change and to rewire to where I I could be a a high functioning mom again. But, um, oh, it it is extremely challenging. And I think especially because I've been reflecting a lot on this, you know, these past few weeks thinking about my experience and what, what, what I want to share from someone who's so intimately familiar with suicide. I would want someone to know, especially the loved ones who have to be left behind when someone has death by suicide, that just like you were sharing your experience of your brains, you know, you can't do this and there's no solution to the dilemma you're having. In my experience, and from experiences talking with other people who have gone through similar experiences, someone who's suicidal just wants the hurt to stop. And they're not thinking about hurting people. They're not forgetting that someone loves them. It's it's not about other people. It's just yeah. how does this end? And For me, I truly believed because I would lash out a lot at my family, especially in the weeks leading up to my very last suicide attempt. I thought they would be better without me. And all you want is for the pain to end. Yeah. And I'm a visual person. I really like analogies. And the only analogy I've been able to come up with, which most closely resembles what it feels like in those moments where you intend to take away your life and you go through the act, you're just at the bottom of a deep, dark well, and you just want to get out of the well. You can't see the light up ahead of you, and the walls are cold, and they're just all around you, and you just want to get out of the well. And so I don't hold myself accountable to having having made a different choice because that's just where I was and my brain was unhealthy and when someone is unhealthy in that way their brain specifically is what I is unhealthy in that way you don't think the way a healthy brain would yeah oh it's devastating for those around who are left behind who wonder why someone would do this to themselves Mm-hmm. I truly believe that you're not held accountable for thinking like a healthy person would. Yeah. No, you painted that picture and described that so beautifully. Um, and I, I, I feel like I can speak from a person of both sides. Like I've lost my sister to suicide. I personally experienced that pain and the confusion and, you know, it, I, I feel that a whole, there's a hole in my heart that will forever be, there until I see my sister again. Um, but also since losing her, 
I I thought I would never struggle with those kind of struggles because I I hadn't and and I knew personally what it does to people that are left behind. I knew that pain and so I thought for sure I would never make that kind of a choice, you know, because I I personally experienced the pain of loss. But I got to the point where I I relate with your your thoughts, Hannah, when you were saying like my family, I'm hurting my family. Um, that was one of the sole reasons that I felt like for me I needed to like suicide was an option because I could see firsthand how it was affecting those that I loved. I could see how it was causing my husband anxiety and causing my daughter um you know, I, I thought like she needs a mom that can make her food. Like she needs a mom that's not that's able to function. Like it it just made sense to me in my in my brain that wasn't functioning that the best thing that I could do for my family was to leave so that they could have the opportunity of having a more functional mom. Um and it's it's interesting too that that you brought that up, I really feel like that is, that is usually, um, and I guess I can't speak for other people, but from like my experience and from what you just said and from people that I've had conversations with around suicide, I think most generally people make that choice really from a place of like wanting the best for their family and like truly believing that that is the best for their family because they are hurting so bad and they see that 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 pain is hurting their family as well Um, and believing that that is not going to get better, you know, that that is like their future um, is forever experiencing that pain and causing people that they love pain. And nobody wants to do that to people that they love. And so it's like in that dysfunctional place um, where your brain is confused and just sees in the moment the and it is so overwhelmed by pain and confusion um it seems like the best option and yeah i and the thing about that too is we've talked up until this point about you know seeking out resources and the many resources that there are that can help you become well again mm-hmm. but in my specific instance that wasn't, I didn't have the capacity to make that choice, even if I wanted to. Yes. Yes. I wasn't capable of doing that. And if someone were to ask me, how do you stop someone from going through the act of trying to to kill themselves? I would say, "Mm, I don't know. I went through with what I did and I was resuscitated in the emergency room. Yeah. I was actually just having a conversation with my husband last night about this um, because when I was in that place, that really dark place, he kept telling me, I want it to be your choice to take medication because I was pregnant. I didn't want to take medication because I didn't want it to affect my baby. And he was like, yeah, you're to a point where you need to take medication, but I want it to be your choice. And I think people need to know when they have a loved one who is very like suicidal, very depressed, like we said earlier, your agency feels like it's taken away and it's really hard to make any kind of logical decision. And I would say to answer that question, if somebody asks me, what do you do if someone you love like has vocalized that they're, that they are suicidal? I would say take them to a hospital. They don't have, they need immediate help. Um, They don't have that agency to really like stop themselves or figure out the best ways for them to get help at that time. They're in a crisis where they need intervention. Um, They need somebody to step in. I guess maybe I would want to rephrase what I said because I think I meant more that in my situation, Knowing how I felt in that moment, you know, I wasn't able to make that choice for myself, but Mm -hmm. I think what we're doing right now by destigmatizing getting help for your brain sicknesses, mental illness, Mm -hmm. and being open about these things and talking about medication and that opens those doors for people. Yeah. So yes, if someone said, you know, what would you do? I don't 
I want, I wouldn't want someone to feel like there's one single thing that if I'd done this differently, or if I'd said this differently, oh, I see what you're if I'd saying. put my arm around them one day, I could have mm -hmm. saved them themselves. Yeah. I don't know what someone could have done in my case. I gotcha. Have reached out and grabbed me before I went to the depths. Yeah. Like those things can only go so far. And it, sometimes I, I go to that place too with my sister. Like, well, what if I just had called her that night and or the day before and just like told her how much I loved her and how much I wanted her and you know, like what if we had a really deep conversation like that? And when I was in the depths of despair and openly suicidal, people that I loved, like my husband and my mom and my dad and my brothers were telling me those things. They were doing everything that they could to try and tell them, like, tell me how much I was needed, how much I was loved. I had an immense support of love, but that didn't really change things for me. And so I get what you're saying. And like, when you lose somebody to suicide, it's, that's what your, that's where your thoughts automatically go. I think as, as somebody who is, who has loved somebody who has made that choice, like you go to those thoughts of like, well, what could I have done? What could I have said? Maybe I could have given them a big hug or like comforted them and then it would have changed things. Um, I had all those things. I had the big hugs. I had the, the phone calls and the outpouring of love and the service and still it was my struggle. It was my state of mind that people couldn't change with a hug or a kind word. It was more than that. It was deeper than that. It was more consuming and controlling than that. And that's why destigmatizing professional intervention, going to the hospital before something happens. Yeah. That's the kind of intervention that someone like that needs. Yes. It's not something that you can do as a loved one. It's and it's a choice that they pro they might not be able to make for themselves in that at that point. Like it's yeah. that is the best thing that you can do if you're having somebody that is suicidal. Um, the best thing that you can do is say, "Okay, hey, let's drive to hospital. I'll be here with you. Like, let's do this. You know, you mm -hmm. you need help, and I love you, and we're gonna get the help you need, and I'll be here with you every step of the way as you need me to be. You know, just like." Yeah. Being that person to step in and say, okay, this is bigger than me and you. Like we need to, we need to look for help. Um, for sure. Is it, and I wish I would have had that earlier on in my process. I think it would have saved some pain, but I was also very against it. You know, I, I was, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go to the hospital. I didn't want to get on medication because I was pregnant and all these other things. I was like, no, no, no. I can do this on my own. I've got to do this on my own. I should be strong enough to be able to face this. And no, I wasn't. I, I simply, my brain wouldn't allow me to be. I have empathy for past generations because they didn't, you know, you didn't talk about mental illness. You didn't talk about that stuff. And yeah. so- I have been surrounded by ideas that are toxic and I totally am against now, but I mean, you know, in the religious setting, which I grew up, I've heard tossed around, you know, suicidal people are murdering themselves and God holds you accountable for murder. And like these things that just aren't true and are just toxic. And it's only been through my experiences where I've learned like, no, that's not the case. And God knows exactly how we are in those moments. I know what it feels like to be in that moment. Mm -hmm. And the choice is not yours. It's not a healthy brain's choice to make. It's bigger than what it seems if you haven't experienced it. And I also want to be clear um, that like, I firmly believe that suicide is, is not the answer. Um, I think you know, obviously it brings a lot of devastation and a lot of pain to those who lose loved ones from suicide. And it unfortunately happens too often. And, and I think it is something that can be prevented. Um, although, you know, I totally love the way that you are talking 
about compassion and how it's it's not something that's easily understood um, or talked about enough to prevent. And so if it's something that hasn't been able to be prevented, like that deserves incredible compassion. Um, and I've seen that in my in my own life with my sister, you know, we weren't able to prevent that. But now I wish I, I knew what I knew now <laughs> because I feel like maybe that could have been prevented, but it also, it doesn't help to go down that train. But yeah. um, well, and now because of the years of therapy and treatment I've been able to have since that, I do have skills now where I feel like I'd be able to be more well-equipped to handle getting to that dark place again. And I feel like I'm really open with my husband. I could be suicidal again one day because there's, again, it's another analogy in my head. There's this canyon of thoughts that was carved for years and the river's dried up. It's not an active thing, but in those dark places, it's there. I got depressed, really depressed in my third semester of dental hygiene school. And I could be suicidal again. I could, my brain could get to the point where it was unwell before and that choice could pop up. But I have resources now that I didn't before. And being made aware of the resources through talking about these things, you know, getting treatment, going to hospital, all of that, you know, you can recognize it as something that could happen, but it doesn't have to, it's not the answer. I agree with you. Yeah. It's not the answer. But it does, it deserves more compassion than what is given for sure. Yeah. Um, Because it, it's something that people can't understand unless they have been there and the people that have been there can just like you and I, like we know what it's like. And it's, it's a very, very scary place to be. It's not a selfish place to be. It's, it feels more out of your control. And, um, for me, it felt like an attack. I can also empathize with people who don't get it. Yeah. Don't understand. I'm happy for them that they don't get it. (laughs) It's a nice thing to not get. You've looked off the end of, you know, a long, ledge off of a tall building and you're like, oh, I want to step back. Our brain has that protective factor so that we don't fall off the edge. Mm-hmm. So a healthy brain has that barrier and we're all born with it. And if you have that barrier, it's hard to understand when that barrier is gone. Mm-hmm. So under- it's just, I can see how hard it would be to not understand why someone you love so much and you tell them you love so much, why you can't reach them. It's just, it's just mm-hmm. complicated all around. It is my firm belief from my experience personally dealing with suicidal ideation and losing a loved one from suicide, that suicide is not the answer that, that it doesn't necessarily bring that, peace and relief that you're so longing for. And again, I can empathize a hundred percent about what that feels like and the need to find that release. But, but I strongly believe that, that completing suicide is not going to give that kind of release that a relief from the pain that you're looking for, you know, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you said that because I didn't want it to come across like thinking because we were you and I have both been talking about it as a choice that our unhealthy brains were comp- contemplating. Yeah. But it's not it's not it doesn't feel like a choice. Answer. Really. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't it do, is mm-hmm. it is a choice, right? But it it's it's almost like for me I felt like my brain was like, you know how people talk about an addict brain and Mm -hmm. you get to a point, addicts get to a point that they're not really choosing 
the drink of alcohol, like it doesn't feel like they're choosing to drink. It's like the drink is controlling them. Like the alcohol is controlling them. And it's Mm -hmm. like, they feel like they can't survive without another drink. That is how it felt like for me. Um, it got so low to where I felt like I wasn't choosing my thoughts anymore. I wasn't choosing my emotions anymore. I wasn't capable of making healthy choices for myself because it got so far down into that pit. And so, yes, I can completely empathize with people who were there. But at the same time, you know, using the alcoholic analogy, looking at somebody that is drinking, it is there is still an amount of agency. Um, they're still choosing to drink, even though it, the drink, the alcohol is pretty controlling of them. Mm-hmm. They're still allowing themselves to drink. And Yes, it's extremely hard to get out of that, but it's possible. And you can see that like continuing down that road of like alcoholism and drinking and to the point that even you could die like that, that's not the, the the answer. (laughs) That's not. Yeah. And there's, there's possibility for change. And I think that that is also true in somebody who is struggling with suicidal ideation. Um, it's very hard, but suicide is not the answer. It's the answer is, you know, I, I believe we're all meant to be here for a reason. We're, we chose to be, my personal belief is we chose to be here for a reason. Um, and now that I'm on the other side of it and I was able to find the tools and find the help and, and I'm feeling myself again, I cherish every moment that I have with my sweet kids. And I'm able to see clearly that that I want to be here and that my life is a precious gift. And I'm, I'm so grateful by the grace of God that I was able to receive and, and find those tools that I needed to recover. I'm so grateful that I didn't get my way that day. Yeah. And it broke my heart that there's people every day who, you know, they're not resuscitated. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that one person's luckier than another. Yeah. But being able to get that help and come through that, I would never have changed the outcome. And so I think by paying it forward, so to speak, helping people see, okay, like, don't be afraid of hospitals. Don't be afraid of medication. Don't be afraid of therapy. Talk about these things hopefully someone will be able to or a loved one of someone will be able to grasp onto those resources before it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. Because no matter what kind of pain somebody might be experiencing, I firmly believe that, that their life, like life, life is worth it. Um, and that the pain doesn't have to be forever, that it, it can be a a forever challenge in a way. But the the complete darkness, it 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 will get better. You know, finding the tools, mm-hmm. finding finding healing, and you've attested to that. You know, for you, it has been a lifelong struggle, but you have seen how you've grown, and you've seen how you have become, and how you've been able to utilize the tools that you're given, and you've seen that your life is a beautiful gift, you know, and you, I love that you said that, that you look back and you are so grateful that you were able to, to live. And it blows my mind that I, you really can treat your mental illness so that it doesn't affect you every day. Yeah. I take my medication and I don't have bipolar disorder mood swings. Yeah. my therapist that helps me cope with day-to-day struggles from, you know, struggles that I still have. But it blows my mind that, oh my gosh, I wish more people knew that this complicated, hard, chronic illness can be treated. Yeah, I think, I think that that is a really, really good note to, to kind of start to close this episode on. Um, well, this has been wonderful, Hannah. Thank you so much for being willing to be on the show and to to share your story. And um, 
your passion for helping other people realize that mental illness, it doesn't discriminate and um, it also, there's no shame. There's no shame in it. And I love how you talked about, talked about that and among so many other, other wonderful things that you brought up tonight. But I want to end with my final question that I end every interview with. What does lighting the shadows mean to you? I think lighting the shadows means holding up a light by destigmatizing mental illness and letting people know about the resources they have available to them and that there is treatment, there is a way to get better, it does get better, and just making that a normal part of every day so that I hope one day people will treat their mental illness the same as any other ailment and that everyone will be able to have access to these resources. And I think by sharing our experiences and being open and honest and de- and taking away shame associated with mental illness, that just makes the world a brighter place. That was beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you again, Hannah, for your willingness to share everything that you shared with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for bearing with me as I've gone through all my thoughts. But Of course. Appreciate you. It was fantastic. Thank you for joining me on Lighting the Shadows. I hope you felt inspired to keep shining your light and be the unique person that you are. A person worth love, peace, joy, and life. I hope today's material has been helpful for you in some way. If you have any questions or comments, or if you would like to be a guest speaker, you can contact me through my website, lightingtheshadows.org. Have a wonderful week.